0: It is wednesday it is already if you can believe it january 12th you're locked into real talk thanks for making time for us this episode of course is proudly presented by our presenting sponsors at bitcoin well this is a great time to get in touch with the team at bitcoin well if you're looking to get in on the movement toward financial sovereignty what does that look like what's the deal with these companies now that are making Bitcoin available to employees. Some employees electing to get paid in Bitcoin. How does it all work? You got the questions. They've got the answers. You can find them under the sponsors tab right at the top on our website at RyanJesperson.com.
1: Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
0: Coming to you live from home. That's right. Real Talk, uh, the host in his Dining room, the editorial producer in her living room and the technical producer running the show from, of course, our Real Talk studio just off Edmonton's beautiful 124th Street District. Coming up a little bit later on in the show in about 10 minutes from now, we're going to find out why a citizen powered tool was necessary, or at least why some people believed it to be so when it came to tracking positive cases of COVID-19 as identified by rapid tests in Toronto's public schools. We're going to talk to Ty Huynh from The Local, get details on that RAT project. That's coming up in about 10 minutes. And today, we're also going to take a look at the future of retail. What does it look like for Canada's retailers, brick and mortar online? What does 2022 hold with regards to trends? What about these supply chain issues we continue to hear about? We're going to have an expert voice in from Harvard as well as the University of Alberta. A great panel discussion coming up in about 40 minutes. But we lead off today with the story out of Quebec. And before we welcome in Supriya Javetti, I want to get her take on this. I want to show you an unofficial unscientific Twitter poll that we ran yesterday. As a matter of fact, it's still going right now on my profile on Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. You'll find it there based on news from Quebec's Premier Francois Legault that that province is considering a health tax. For those that aren't vaccinated, I asked you, uh, do you think that people should be taxed for opting out of getting the vaccine? So far, we've got about 3,400 votes. It's going to be open uh, for another six and a half hours or so, 75% of you say you're unvaccinated, pay up. You're okay with it. Now, not everybody is. We've got a lot of people crying foul here saying that it violates the Canada Health Act. Some of you are saying that it violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I'm not so sure about that. Let's get to Sapria's take on this. You know, Sapria Devetti, senior counsel at Enterprise Canada. She's a, uh, a researcher at Ryerson University, a former talk host in uh, the city of Toronto and, of course, a member of our editorial board, a good friend of this show. Thanks for making time for us. I should probably point out maybe the most relevant background information on you, Sapria about this, a born and raised Quebecer. What are your initial thoughts on this health tax?
2: I mean, I don't even really know what to call it because there are very, very few details that have been provided by Premier Legault in the announcement of this. And I would just point out that on Monday night, you know, his main public health point guy, the director, steps down. Right. He submits his resignation letter in which he basically says there's been a bit of an erosion in terms of the trust from the public. Tuesday, we get this announcement from Nago, which is really just like, you know, he's lobbing something out there without any details, without any sort of um, plan or mechanism as to how this will work. And now it's Wednesday morning and nobody's talking about the Monday night news in which his public health director had submitted his resignation. And the, you know, interim replacement that is going to be replacing him is the father of the spokesperson for his own health minister. Um, so I, I think a lot of this is, you, you know, Legault kind of doing policy via group chat. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not denying the fact that there is probably some thinking behind this in which, you, you know, if you are going to be unvaccinated and you continue to be unvaccinated by choice and you're putting an extra strain on the healthcare system, then, you know, pay up. And, and I, I don't, you know, question the, the sort of motivation or the thinking behind that. But I think we should all be, you know, rather cognizant of the environment in which this announcement sort of came to be.
0: So in Alberta, uh, sons get jobs based on who their dads are. And in Quebec, dads get jobs based on who their (laughs) sons are. Is that what I'm picking up? Daughter, actually Oh, um, daughter. Pardon me. Yeah.
2: I mean, look, that's not to take away from the interim director's sort of his own you know, chops here. He's very well respected in the medical community. And, you know, there, there's no question of that. But I think if you're looking at this on its face, the, the optics of it are, are, you know, some somewhat questionable. And I think specifically because there are very little details that were provided um, from the go when, when he did announce this. Um, it, it sort of does, you know, the, the PR and the optics of this all, all does have to be in, in question. And, and I know, for example, you know, you, you mentioned right there in your intro that there were a lot of people saying that this is going to violate the Canada Health Act. But it doesn't really seem to be how that'll be structured. Like Lego's not saying if you are unvaccinated, then you won't be able to access you know, publicly funded care. You're not going to be able to go to your doctor. You won't be treated at a hospital. This kind of sounds like, and again, I do want to stress very little details, but what he was getting at is that it kind of sounds like it's going to be a line item on your tax return. And my guess would be, it'll likely be something along the lines of, if you are vaccinated, you show proof of your vaccination. And if you cannot show proof, then you're then subject to the, you know, substantial, fee, whatever that ends up being, because we really don't know what that fee will be, just that from Legault's own words, he wants it to be, you know, substantive.
0: Yeah, exactly. In his own words, he said, this is not going to be 50 or $100, uh, which leads me to believe it's going to be minimum. If you say it's not going to be 100, you don't make it 110. Uh, I would guess it's going to be 250. Maybe it's 500. I mean, once you start getting into the $500 range, you get people on fixed incomes or lower income earners that are are bringing home 18 to 25,000 a year. That's a big freaking deal. And I can imagine people pushing back on this. I'm actually blown away that 75% of our respondents are saying that they're okay with this. I mean, I'm okay with this, but I understand that the arguments that I will present in favor of it are as full of holes as Swiss cheese. And, and I get why a lot of people are pushing back on this, and they're coming at it from a number of different angles. Uh, but but at the same time, I've, I've I've kind of lost patience, to be honest, with yeah. with a lot of the sort of the anti vaxx or unvaccinated movement here. So uh, that's what's fueling my feelings on this. Uh, your personal feeling on this. Uh, You alluded to the fact that you're kind of sort of okay with it, but where do you land on it?
2: Look, I think this is something that you do as a sort of last measure, as a last resort. And I think it's very hard to argue that the Quebec government or any government really has done everything they can to really increase vaccinations. Right. I think there's a whole lot more you could be doing in terms of, you know, a door to door vaccination campaign and in terms of running, you know, vaccine clinics in, in schools, just making it as easy as possible for people to access, you know, information, but also to make the vaccine as accessible as possible to folks. And I think it's very important for those of us who are vaccinated and who do believe in science and who do, you know, believe in community and the fact that we live in a society and need to help each other out, we need to recognize that there is a gradation of these, you know, anti-vaccine or vaccine-hesitant people. I think we've all been inundated with images of those, you know, feral fucks that were on the campaign trail lobbing rocks at the PM or the folks that are, you know, regularly outside here in Ontario, outside of the Premier Ford's home or um, Minister Elliott's home, right? Those people, yes, they're not going to be brought into the fold, but there are people who, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's the Brainworm, the, the algorithmic induced brainworms that we all get from social media, or just not having, you know, the full trust in the healthcare system. I still do believe those people can be brought into the fold, and I, I still think we should be trying to reach those people. And Ryan, to your point about folks being on fixed income, um, I, like that's really bad like if you're if you're lower income and this and this tax comes in and it's like as you said you know substantial 500 600 whatever it ends up being what what do those people do
0: yeah, I don't, there's no way it's going to be 500 bucks. I don't think so. I uh, <clears> think <throat> I think that's I a lot, that would, yeah. that, that's a lot. Uh, but it, I mean, I would say maybe 250. I don't know. There, I mean, there's there's healthcare premiums in most provinces. There's all kinds of different ways. I've seen a lot of people making points about sin taxes on cigarettes and alcohol. I've seen other people making points that extreme sport athletes or, or people that, you know, eat Tide Pods uh, aren't being charged <laughs> sir, charges and they're more than welcome in ERs and they receive the care that they want. I mean, I, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of different opinions on this. Um, I, but that's also I, a false I, I, equivalency,
2: I, though, right? Because Well, you know, and,
0: and some people are saying that. They're saying you can't compare syntaxes to this. Why do you think that you can't?
2: Well, I mean, for one, I, I mean, I if you smoke a cigarette, okay, I'm not catching your smoking addiction by you buying cigarettes, right? Like- this isn't an eating tide pod, same thing. Like none of these things are transmissible, doing an extreme sport or whatever it is, whatever the example was, none of those are very highly transmissible diseases that can render you uh, with a chronic, you know, long-term long COVID condition, or can, you know, then go on to infect more people. So I think that's a bit of a false equivalency. And it also, again, you know, from what I said at the onset of this, it's clear that Legault isn't tying this to access to healthcare. So right off the bat, those examples of it being you know a bit of a slippery slope don't necessarily really hold up because Legault isn't saying that if you're not vaccinated, you know you're not going to get treated in the ER or you won't have access to your to, yeah. your, to healthcare or whatever it is. Um, I, I think the it's interesting to from a you know a policy perspective to really suss out what the goal of this is. If the goal of this is to increase vaccinations. Then you know, okay. But I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. And in other jurisdictions that have done this, um, I'm thinking primarily of like Greece, and I think Austria is another one. Singapore may be another one there. I, I'm not sure if they've seen a huge spike in 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 first doses and second doses um, after these you know charges were were sort of introduced. Um, whereas when when Quebec made it mandatory to enter the, you know, the SAC, which is their, their, their government booze store or their government weed stores, you did see a massive uptick in vaccination. Um, And so again, I think there are other, you know, tools that are that are still available that haven't necessarily been tried. And I I really think, you know, the door to door vaccination campaign or public health campaign, we really haven't seen that anywhere here. Um, and they've been doing that for, for quite some time in, in a lot of other jurisdictions. I'm thinking in the before times, for example, in India, going door to door to get people flu vaccines was, was somewhat commonplace. So I don't
0: know. I mean, you it, make it, your way through the neighborhood kind of like, like the ice cream truck. And you yeah. assume that the reason that people are not vaccinated yet is simply because it's not been convenient for them, not because they have some sort of inherent pushback against the vaccine.
2: Yeah, it's you have to make it as convenient as possible. And you have to make it uh, the information in terms of, you know, where to register. And like Quebec has had a better registration rollout than, you know, certainly in Ontario. But I, I, I still think there, there are things that we can be doing. And, and yeah, you know, ice cream trucks are great example. You hear that and everybody rushes outside. I want to get ice
0: cream. There's either, uh, you know, rocket pops to be purchased yeah. or there's a serial killer making their way down the street. <laughs> one, or, one of the two. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I see eye to eye with you on a lot of things. I do not see eye to eye with you. And I respect your optimism and your faith in people, Supriya, when you say you got to still kind of try to reach people and you got to still try to get that. I'm going to be honest. I mean, my, my feeling, the real talk on this is that we're two years in vaccines. As far as I'm concerned, I was able to get my first dose as soon as I wanted it. I was able to get my second one as soon as I wanted it. And I walked right in and I got boosted the other day. And some people are going to say, fuck this guy and his privilege. That's not the point. That's not the swagger I'm trying to to portray right now. What I'm trying to say is it's been very easy and available and ask Sarah Hoyles. I am the least organized person you will (laughs) ever meet. So if I'm staying on top of my vaccinations, Anybody should be able to stay on top of their vaccines. I don't necessarily share your thought, uh, although I hope you're right. I don't share your thought that I think it's just been a lack of access. That's been the biggest reason. It's certainly relevant in some circumstances, but my guess is that the majority of the so-called unvaccinated at this point are doing it based on principle. And I don't know if we're going to change those minds. So Heck, there's a lot of reasons uh, why people feel the way they do about this. I really appreciate you joining us uh, to share yours, Supriya. I know you've got a meeting you got to get to right away. So we're going to cut you loose. And thank you for your time. It's always good to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, that's Supriya Devetti, Of course, one of our favorites. And as Sarah pointed out in the Real Talk trivia uh, on, our, on our Patreon, our Real Talk Christmas party, Supriya, the most recurring guest of 2021 here on the show. No surprise there. Uh, Ryan chimed in on my Twitter. He says, listen, and and again, please, the the poll is open for another six hours, so I'd love to see if the numbers change on this. Typically, polls tend to kind of hold true, maybe give or take five, maybe 10% either way. But right now, three out of four of you, uh, of the 3,500 or so that have taken the poll, 75%, three out of four say you're okay with this health tax in Quebec. But the people that aren't okay are are basically all the people leaving the comments, uh, which is great too you know for example ryan says you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more pro-vaccine than me uh, but if drunk drivers and smokers get so-called free health care denying the unvaccinated the same is subhuman now again ryan's talking about denying health care nobody's saying you're denying the unvaccinated health care in quebec you're just saying they're going to pay a surcharge they're going to pay a tax for it and smokers, uh, hey, people that chew tobacco that are now paying. Somebody's told me that they're coming up on forty dollars a tin for chew. Is this true? Thirty plus dollars a tin for chew. They are paying taxes because of the added strain on the healthcare system, or because of government's unsatiable acts, uh, you know, appetite for tax revenue. One of one of the other, but they pay more. You might say, I don't know if these are apples and apples, Jespo. You can let me know what you think. James says, I don't know if this is legal under the health act. I mean. You know, I mean, and even if the courts do toss this out, then would Quebec use the notwithstanding clause to overrule that court ruling? Interesting question. Beer judge says, I can see that the Alberta government actually doing this as a way to bring back health care premiums for everybody. I think Alberta is probably the last jurisdiction in Canada that would roll out a policy like this. But maybe I'm wrong. Probably not, but maybe. Leah wonders, how do you suggest we deal with folks using vulnerable people to obtain vaccine passports? What about this? That's another story that we need to spend some time talking about. She says, how is this going to help vulnerable people? It's going to make it an awful situation. Horrific, in my opinion. That from Leah. You hear this story? People have been paying vulnerable folks, oftentimes the, the unhoused, the homeless people, whatever the case is, people experiencing mental illness. They've been paying them to go get vaccinated on their behalf so that they can have the QR code showing that they're vaccinated when they're not. I saw one man give an interview to a journalist out in Ontario. He said he'd been vaccinated, so to speak. He'd received seven shots in one day because people were paying him. People were paying him cash to go get shots on their behalf. How bad is that? I mean, this whole situation's a mess. Although I should be positive too, hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers every single morning are showing up and going back to work. Teachers are there back in school and and we're going to meet next somebody who's using their platform as a journalist, as a publisher to try to keep the public in the know and informed when it comes to the prevalence of positive cases. So there are a lot of good things happening too. Don't let me give you the wrong idea here, but we always want to make sure that you have a a good understanding of everything that's going on and impacting us in our everyday lives. That conversation on rapid tests in schools, in Toronto in particular, coming up in just a second. Let me remind you, this show does not happen without the support of amazing partners like Athabasca University. Athabasca is Canada's online university. And they want to remind you that this is the time of year oftentimes where people are looking to better themselves, better their situation. Maybe you'd want to equip yourself for a changing job market. We're going to hear more about the changes in retail coming up a little later on in this show. What does that mean for you? If you're in that business, Athabasca U is always ready for you to learn at your pace in what works for you, your custom fit scenario. You can find them online at Athabasca U. Ca. Also want to give a big shout out to our friends at KUBI Energy, providing solar energy solutions, commercial, residential, agricultural and industrial applications across Western Canada. They're proudly based out of Edmonton and Kamloops, B.C. They've been, by way of their Instagram this year, showing some amazing things that people are doing on farms in Canada, implementing solar into their sustainable energy operations. Really incredible advancements being made in solar and KUBI is leading the Charge. Get it, everybody. They're leading the charge at kubyenergy.ca. All right. Well, how much do you know about who's testing positive for COVID around you? And what impact would that make if you had access to that information on where you go, where you send your kids, how your household operates. Ty Quinn is the editor-in-chief of The Local. It's an independent, not-for-profit journalism organization reporting on urban health and social issues in Toronto. Ty and his team took on a big project, the RAT Project, uh, in the absence of public health data. Really remarkable story, and we're grateful, Ty, that you've made time to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, and, and thanks for hanging out with us. And good morning to you.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: For people that don't know The Local, why don't you give us the Coles notes on what you're all
3: about? That's exactly it. We're an online magazine in Toronto. Uh, We've been around for a few years now that's uh, focused on urban health issues in the city. And we've been tracking uh, the school situation since the beginning of the school year uh, around, you know, where the cases are. Uh, We've mapped them out so parents, uh, students, education workers could really have a glimpse into where the the virus is in the city and uh, to take precautions uh, as they see fit.
0: This has been deemed necessary in the absence of that data being provided by the Ontario Ministry of Health or Ministry of Education?
3: Yeah, so the data has been public data since the beginning of the school year, or actually since the pandemic began. So all the school boards, there are four school boards in Toronto, and they are all obligated to publish uh, COVID positive cases uh, on their website uh, on a daily basis. And they've been doing that, um, as I said, since the beginning. And most recently on December 30th, the provincial government uh put out a notice to all the school boards saying um, thou shalt cease to do that going forward for you know unknown reasons uh, at the time. And so that I think was very concerning, not just to us, but to our readers, that they will they will have this black hole of information at a time when they probably want more information given. Uh, what they're up against in terms of making decisions for uh, in-person schooling for their kids.
0: Ty, for people that aren't following the the situations closely across the country, and who could blame them? There's a lot to keep focus on. Uh, Alberta and BC sent students back to class this past Monday on on January 10th. Uh, Ontario, your home province, that comes this next Monday. So there's uh, literally millions of people with their hearts in their throats right now. Fair to say?
3: That's correct. Yes, Uh, it's been delayed uh, to Monday.
0: Okay. So people are looking at this data and, and, and I would imagine going to be forming opinions on wh- whether or not their family's plan includes sending kids back to school if they have the luxury of that choice. How did this all work out? I mean, how did you uh, accomplish it? How did the tracking work? Who supplied the information to you? How many people participated and, and what did you take away from it?
3: Yeah. So in the face of this black hole of, of data and, and, and knowledge, uh, we launched a uh, rat tracker on uh, New Year's Day. Uh, and the idea is very simple. So the province prior to the uh, Christmas holiday break sent out 11 million rapid antigen tests to all students across the province, including 2 million in the city of Toronto. And these tests were supposed to be done every three or four days uh, by the kids uh, for their own kind of uh, knowledge, Uh, but uh, none of that is reported anywhere. And the situation with the lab testing in Ontario is actually quite dire um the pcr system which is laboratory based, is really being crushed right now because of the surge in omicron so there's no more capacity to do any more tests so so on the one hand we don't have capacity on the other hand we have all these rapid tests uh like simple things like this that everybody's using and yet we're not getting data from that so we thought that was a missed opportunity so we could create a website where people can anonymously put their results in their positive or negative going as far back as the start of the winter break december 17th Maybe, just maybe we'll have enough info to put a map together so people can drill in down to the school level to see what the rates are at their own local school.
0: What was the uptake like? I mean, were you surprised at the number of people that took part?
3: Um, I would say the uptake was low compared to the kind of media coverage that we had on it. Like all the major news outlets covered uh, our project, Uh, huge social media response. But in the end, over the 10 uh, day period, uh, we only got 2,600 submissions for the results, despite all of that uh, widespread notoriety. Uh, So that was a bit disappointing. And so we published an article yesterday just to recap what we found and made the conclusion that uh, it's been a failure really, in terms of (laughs) compared to our aspiration initially.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, people can check out the local.to if they want to read your report. I mean, you you essentially acknowledge even in the headline. Basically, we don't know much more than when we began, which which for you has got to be a little bit discouraging. But at the same time, projects like this or, or endeavoring to do something like you did, regardless of how it turns out, you learn something from it. All right. I mean, a relative lack of participation tells you something. What is it?
3: Yeah, so we learned quite a few things, actually. One is, you know, those who are participating were really enthusiastic. I mean, they were submitting data going, you know, as far back, they went back and looked at their own kind of testing history and and, and submitted that data. So, we're really grateful for that. So, that's number one, people willing to step up. The other thing is, in the hours after we launched our rat tracker, a whole bunch of other groups did very similar things, you know, trying to do it across the province, some were trying to do it in BC, etc. So, quite a number of groups try to do this as well. And I think part of the issue is that we're spreading ourselves pretty thin and creating confusion as well. And I think some of these sites, some of them are very well run, others don't really have the data security, et cetera. So I think people might be nervous about that, even though it's all anonymous. Um, so I think these are some of, of the learnings, but the biggest learning of all is, you know, it's hard for citizens and groups like ours to try to do the job of population level COVID surveillance. The only agent that's really that's able to do that, and I think to do that effectively, is the government. And so, unless the government's willing to take this on, and we've seen plenty of governments do this, including New York City is a perfect example where, you know, they have a school system that's a million students strong, so half the size of Ontario's, and you know, probably double the size of Toronto's, uh, and yet they're doing rap- they're doing uh, voluntary testing randomly of twenty percent of their students on a weekly basis and tracking all of that. And you can go to, to their Department of Education website and look at the school level, what the rates are. So it can be done at that level, but it needs the government's leadership uh, for that to happen, not you know stuff like what we've tried to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's when we look back on this uh, pandemic and I'm talking like, you know, five or 10 or 20 years from now with the luxury of time and understanding about how those ripple effects play out, Alberta and Ontario will both be interesting jurisdictions to study. The the provincial leadership has come under a great deal of fire, uh, including with the chief medical officers of health and, of course, the premiers. Uh, I'm curious to know, Ty, like, you know, you've you've been the locals been doing work uh, in health reporting in particular. Uh, for a good number of years. And of course, you've seen the ebbs and flows of this pandemic. And obviously, uh, from, from a health journalist standpoint like yourself, it's a pandemic is unlike anything else probably you've ever covered. What are a couple of the other significant takeaways from your experience storytelling through these past couple of years?
3: Yeah, one is um, in a city like Toronto where we have such great diversity and um, also kind of wealth um, disparity, that the pandemic really, I think, provided us a, a window into uh, that world uh, in real time. You know, so when you took when you look back to the vaccine distribution efforts uh, as far back as you know the spring, uh, right from the get go, we saw the disparities. So neighborhoods that were hard hit by the pandemic, lots of infections, ended up being the ones that were the slowest to get vaccines uh, for a number of reasons. So I think that theme keeps coming back over and over again even now as we're looking at uh the uh the kids within schools we're seeing you know huge disparity among uh you know those who are in wealthier more affluent neighborhoods getting a lot more of themselves vaccinated compared to those that i think when the school doors when the school doors open next week those that are in those other neighborhoods that are probably going to face a lot of infections are probably not as highly vaccinated. So I think that's one of the recurring themes that we found throughout the pandemic.
0: This is uh, my final question here will be an impossible one probably for you to answer because as mentioned, we're talking about millions of people. Uh, But as Alberta families were preparing to, in some circumstances, send kids back to school or return to school themselves as teachers, bus drivers, administrators, what have you, and other families were preparing to keep kids home. I wanted to get a sense of where people were at because there's a lot of noise on social media. It can be hard to tell really where the majority's at or where people are with regards to nuanced positions. I had about 5,500 people chime in on our Twitter poll, again, unscientific, but a majority, 56% said that they were sending their kids back to school. When, when you put your finger on the pulse of Toronto or uh, Ontario writ large, what are you seeing with regards to where people are at with this coming Monday?
3: Yeah, it's really hard to tell. I think you kind of don't know until day one, and that's what we saw in many places. Um, and I think the, the big question, and it's it's really polarizing, you know, the debate around in-school versus virtual, right? Like, probably more polarizing than it needs to be. But I think each person needs to assess that based on their own circumstances. So if you had a kid that's fully vaccinated, two-dose, right, and you're living in a neighborhood maybe where infections aren't as high, maybe you feel better about sending your kids into the school environment, right? Versus the reverse. So I think it's all kind of based on your own individual circumstance to some extent. But I think the biggest uh, thing that we're looking out for uh, as far as next concern in Ontario is uh, really practical uh, types of uh, factors like, will we have enough teachers, right? Because a lot of teachers are probably gonna be off sick with COVID. Or other types of illnesses. And what is that going to do to the staffing ratio? Sure, you might have 30% of students not showing up. But if you have 30 students showing up, and you don't have one staff showing up, uh, you got a problem, right? And so I think we're going to have to really watch and see what happens next week as the doors open and what that ratio is.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. We're seeing, I mean, anecdotally, people are posting, you know, whether they're memos or emails they're receiving or what have you, indicating that staffing levels for substitute teachers are already uh, hitting their max capacity. And this is relatively early in all of this. So uh, it's certainly something that we'll be keeping an eye on. I know you and your team will be as well, Ty. Uh, Ty Wynn is the editor-in-chief of The Local, an independent not-for-profit journalism outlet. You can check him out online. I encourage you to do so at thelocal.com. T O, Ty. Great work, and thanks for making time for us. Thanks, thanks for having me. You bet. You can let me know what you think about the project and rapid testing and Hoyle's. I don't know about your opinion on this. Like, and I mean this question, not not in a in a dismissive sort of a way. But does it actually even matter the numbers of positive infections in schools? And, and let me get the entire thought out before you respond and go, "What the hell is this guy talking? What kind of an idiot is this guy?" I'm hearing and seeing most people saying, I'm just going to assume that there's positive cases everywhere. I think a lot of people are conducting themselves in that way, going, I'm just going to assume if I have to go to the bank or the grocery store, let alone, and I hate to say this, but a restaurant or a shopping mall or anywhere else that there's going to be Omicron swirling all around me. Uh, Obviously, the work that Ty and his team are doing, there's great value to it. But I bet you a lot of parents are just going to say, I just assume that COVID's all over the schools.
4: I think that is, you know, realistic. And Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta did say, you know, everyone's going to get it. I'm paraphrasing, but everyone's going to get it. And I think a lot of people are just uh, kind of resigned to that fact and have given up, which is sad, uh, that we're, that we're at that point.
0: It's it's sad, I guess, in a way, but it's also kind of like pe- people are, you know. I, there's this we've we've reflected, I think, even in our content and the tone of our conversations. Even just this week, a lot of people are, are are just going, "Listen, I've done everything that I think I possibly can. I've I've been double vaccinated. In some circumstances, people say I've got my booster. I've been socially distancing. I'm wearing the KN or the N95 mask. I'm doing everything I possibly can, and still I got it, or somebody close to me got it, or I see yeah. everybody around me getting it, and it just seems inevitable." And, and and that people are sort of pairing this up with some of the expert advice that they're hearing and some, you know, you combine it with the anecdotal evidence and people are going, well, it sounds to me like maybe it's a little bit different. An interesting conversation yesterday with the ER doc on our show who said you talked about sort of the, the, you know, the hospitals are seeing more and more cases, but they're more and more mild. You've got people offering the counterpoint that that's not productive messaging. It's dangerous yeah. messaging to use the word mild. So, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on this. I, I understand. And, and, you know, I mean, I guess you hit the two-year point of anything. I retweeted somebody yesterday who said, I've been trying to just get to the end of this week for two straight years. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that.
4: I mean, I'm, I am a little competitive and I'm darn right stubborn. Okay. So, I am just like, this is a shocker. I know. Uh, so, but the idea that I, like, I'm going to try my damnedest to to stay well and to stay healthy. And yeah. so I'm, I'm masked up, I'm bubbling, I'm doing everything that I can. Um, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee my safety.
0: It can, it can still get you, Hoyles. Although for, for your circumstance, I hope that it doesn't, but it can still get you. Let me tell you that if you're just tuning in or if you're hearing this interview, but maybe you didn't catch ours yesterday, we tackled that question. Should you just go out and get Omicron? Should you just go out and get sick? Uh, Spoiler, the answer is no, but you should check out our interview yesterday. It was a really good conversation. Hoyles, you know, we should let our audience uh, know that there was uh, we heard from a couple of physicians after that conversation yesterday, uh, unhappy with what they heard from the ER doc. And so we said, hey, listen, this is the this is a forum. This is a venue where you hear something that you would deem to be inaccurate or misleading. You can come on and correct the record. You can come on and take issue with it. So that's going to be next Monday morning. We'll have a panel of doctors that are going to chime in and fact check what they heard from one of their colleagues. Uh, Always want to make sure that people have as much information as possible at their fingertips. Uh, We're going to take a look at the future of retail. That's coming up in just a few minutes here on the show. But I want to remind you, of course, you know, shows like this don't happen without the support of incredible sponsors. And that includes the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Uh, They've got the best selection in the entire province of Alberta on those trucks that everybody wants. The back-to-back-to-back winner of the Motor Trend Truck of the Year is the Dodge Ram 1500 and selection better right now at those two dealerships than it has been in the last two years. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge can share inventories. Uh, Plus their teams can work together to make sure that you get the exact ride you're looking for. You can find them online, browse their inventory by way of their websites, just link to them by the sponsors tab on ours, ryanjesperson.com. Another big shout out as well to the team at Friesen Brothers. You know that for more than 65 years, they've been Alberta owned and Alberta grown 16 communities have a Friesen Brothers right there. Their fresh market is one that I especially recommend. You're gonna find fresh Alberta produce whenever available as close to home. That's who they're working with. Real Alberta beef cut by their real butchers. Pork, chicken, turkey too. And of course their sourdough, absolutely legendary. You'll find it all at Friesen.com or at a Friesen Brothers in your neck of the woods. Uh, In a couple of minutes, we're going to take a look at the future of retail. What does it look like? I'm going to be joined by a couple of voices, one out of Harvard, one of the University of Alberta's business school. What do supply chains look like? What are the complications with regards to shipping over 2022? How has business evolved? What about trends when it comes to consumers? All of this coming up momentarily. Every Wednesday, though, of course, you know that this is a tradition here on the show, an opportunity for us to all take a collective breath of fresh air metaphorical or otherwise it's a partnership that we're proud to have with our friends at tourism jasper as we present my jasper memories now this time of year is a very special one of course when it comes to jasper you know people are used to jasper in january it's been a tradition in jasper national park for many years but it it's it's a little bit different this year it's a little bit different because of omicron and the way that the infection is impacting people. A few of the events planned for Jasper in January have changed. And so we wanna bring you up to speed on this, But, but let's take a look at some of these images and remind you what's still open and available. When everybody's jammed up, when everybody's staying home, when everybody's social distancing, what better venue for that than the Rocky Mountains? Don't forget, you can still safely enjoy the fantastic skiing and snowboarding at Marmot Basin, the beautiful backcountry opportunities out there, and of course, their world class outdoor recreational activities, all still available as part of Jasper in January. The light installations, as well, I know a lot of people are really excited about those and those Maline Canyon walks, unparalleled when it comes to the scenery and the really visceral outdoor experience that you're going to receive. Now, of course, because the events are reduced, it means that if you had plans for the street party and the fireworks, the After Dark concert series, well, unfortunately, those are canceled. The wine and winter gathering, the whiskey wine and hops celebration, those have been postponed to April, and we're going to keep you in the loop on that. Of course, we want to encourage both residents and visitors of beautiful Jasper to be respectful, to make sure you're adhering to public health restrictions at all times. But we want to reiterate there are still options to get outside and really, truly enjoy yourself in these difficult times. We've headed out to Jasper as a family several times through this pandemic, and you're able to isolate in a venue that is unlike any other. You can check out our features in past celebrating Jasper, including some great ideas on how you can spend your valuable time out there by checking out jasper.travel slash Talk. That's jasper.travel slash Talk. The future of retail has been on our radar. And so we wanted to go to the source because, of course, January is the time of year where you start to take a look at trends and you start to wonder what's the year ahead going to look like. And of course, a big part of that involves commerce. Now, Sarah, of course, you know that we're doing this show from our homes, and so we don't have the typical opportunities to communicate. So we're going to pull back the curtain wizard of Oz style. And I'm just going to ask you right now, are we ready to go with both of our guests? I see one of them in our green room right now. Am I moving ahead with just the one guest right now? Okay, that's what we're going to do. And hopefully Heather Thompson will join us. Heather's the director of the School of Retail at the University of Alberta School of Business. I'm thrilled that the Harvard voice is here with us. Bob Gibbs is an international expert on retail and development. He teaches retail business at Harvard University. You may have heard of it. He's the principal at the Gibbs Planning Group as well. Bob, thanks so much for making time for us. And and welcome uh, to Real Talk. Are you coming at us from uh, the great state of Massachusetts right now? Uh, Michigan. Michigan. What's going on in Michigan these days? And Ryan, I have
5: to clarify, I'm not a full professor at Harvard. I just teach one class.
0: Okay. Hey, buddy. My uncle got a uh, an honorary degree from Harvard and I said to him, life will never be the same. You don't have to clarify the details of this. You've got a Harvard degree, but I love it. Tell us about the class that you're teaching at Harvard.
5: It's uh, a class for uh, developers and policymakers to learn how to have, build competitive shopping
0: districts. So how this is obviously all changing over the past number of years based on a ton of different factors. How much have you had to amend what you're teaching people in the past couple of years?
5: Well, retail reinvents itself every five or six years. So this is probably the most radical one. And I start out by telling them everything I told them before is now obsolete.
0: So how I mean how is a retailer that listens to this interview supposed to wrap their mind around the proper way to do business these days? I mean I get I mean I know that there's been immense challenges obviously uh, based on this pandemic and every retailer probably is endeavoring to understand their business as best they can and there's going to be different challenges facing everybody but but generally speaking I mean the entire it's like a nuclear bomb's gone off and everybody's just rebuilding right? Yeah, that's right. There's been a
5: threefold crisis right now. The supply chain, they can't get inventory, the fear of COVID and people not wanting to socialize in stores or restaurants, and then the uh, competition with the internet. And the best advice we offer right now is to offer an experience that they can't get on the internet and to make it worthwhile to go into restaurants or stores. This is especially true for millennials who really don't care about brands or high-priced merchandise. They want to have fun when they shop or dine out.
0: So are you seeing examples of that uh, put into practice that are, that are really proving to be effective? Like, Is there, is there an outlet or a, a company or a retailer that's doing a particularly good job, do you think, making that adjustment?
5: Yeah. Uh, some of the classics are anthropology, which creates the feelings if you're in a, a um, vintage store. Uh, the Gap still does well, uh, the Nordstrom's still does well, Pottery Barn does well for the big chains, the small chains are Jay McLaughlin, a tiny boutique store, Sarah Campbell, and then many of the restaurants, but they try to make it fun to shop and rather than just buying a commodity, uh, giving you an experience.
0: We got an interesting comment here from Wally, who's watching us live on YouTube right now. Wally says retailers need to learn one thing, and it's that convenience is number one, not price. You know, are you open late? Are you accessible? If so, great, because that is what Amazon and big box stores may have over them. Is, is Wally onto something?
5: Yeah, that's spot on. They have to have extended hours. Currently, about 70% of all sales happen after 5 o'clock at night and on Sundays. And they have to give good service, greet the customer, know their name, know about their family, but make sure that that sweater or that clothing really fits them well and that it's going to meet their, their goals and their taste level.
0: I remember speaking to a a personal friend of mine that used to run a a really sort of a high end custom kitchen gadget shop, and uh, he did a much better job of describing his shop than I just did. But it was it was people that were willing to spend top dollar on the best espresso machine or the best toaster or the best chef's knife. And ultimately, I remember that the day that he closed, I was talking to him and he said, we just couldn't compete with online. He said, what was really discouraging is that people would come into the store to demo the products or to hold the products in their hands, and then they'd go home and buy them online. And he said, with our overhead, even though we're running lean, we just haven't been able to compete. I mean, what do you say to somebody like that? <laughs> Well, that's very true. Uh, a lot of a lot of younger shoppers
5: have no guilt feeling about going into a shoe store, trying on the shoes and right in front of the salesman while they're still sitting in a chair, ordering that shoe from samples. Uh, for the kitchen appliance stores to compete, they are offering how to cook gatherings. Um, they're giving tips and they're holding classes on cooking and all of that with uh, shoes they are offering a wide selection of shoes, the brands people want, but then also easy returns if it doesn't uh, fit you well. And that's one of the blind sides of online shopping is that it's still a hassle to take them back. And you don't have that instant gratification of trying on the sweater. If you've had a bit, bad day buying that red sweater, buying that new pair of shoes, you, you don't have that when you have to wait three or four days and go through a catalog online.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I want to welcome in a friend of mine to this conversation. Heather Thompson is the executive director at the Center for Cities and Communities, formerly known as the School of Retail at the University of Alberta. First of all, my friend, a happy new year to you. Thanks for making time for us. Um, Bob and I were just having a conversation about how, how obviously, I mean, you know, oftentimes retail landscapes change just like any other industry. There's nothing new there. Retailers have been pivoting as entrepreneurs have and people doing business for many years, but the pandemic has obviously introduced some new challenges. As have some other factors. I mean, the Suez Canal blockage is still having an impact if you talk to a lot of people. Um, in your understanding, Heather, uh, or with regards to where your focus is at, how does retail most evolve or what's most necessary for successful retailers in the year to come in 2022?
6: I think there's a variety of things. I think the biggest thing that we've been seeing even before the pandemic and certainly through throughout the pandemic is this notion of experiential uh, retail. We're in the experience economy. And I think that the really successful retailers have moved away from just the distribution model. So if we see this with department stores as a good example, where their sole business model is to provide a product to the customer, that's not good enough anymore. So we need to make sure that we are giving our customers and, and consumers a reason to spend money. And the data has is is proof positive that we as consumers are prepared to pay a premium for a good or a service if we like the experience. So whether that's food, beverage, a beautiful space, a, a, a store that has great customer experiences and customer service, these are all things that are going to make a big difference. And the retailers that are not paying attention to these things are the ones that are not surviving.
0: Okay. So you're, you're describing, and I agree with you and Bob alluded to something along the same lines, I would agree with you that for myself, that's the type of personal experience I'm looking for. Uh, you've also just described uh, a three-quarter of a million dollar or a $1.5 million build, right? Over 10,000 square feet in a shopping mall, if you're like restoration yeah. hardware or one of these stores. Um, I want to ask both of you this, Bob, you first, do you, do you think that the the brick and mortar shopping center, the huge overhead, huge cost operationally and otherwise, is that- I mean, are we seeing the twilight of that era? Is the shopping mall
5: dead? No, not. Well, the shopping mall is dead. It's just too boring. And so the retailers are leaving the mall and the strip centers to build in downtowns. They want real authentic places with main streets, with on-street parking. And that's really one of the drawbacks of Canadian cities. Generally, Canadian cities are just ugly. They have grotesque signs. The storefronts are ugly and boring. And in order to really compete with the mall and online, you have to have an attractive, well-planned, well-designed place. And unfortunately, Canadian cities fall short of that. Um, European American cities have signed standards, historic design standards, which make it really exciting. But the mall is dead. It's forecast that 85% of all malls are going to close by 2025. Same with the ugly big box power centers. Those that those are closing because the big boxes can't be big enough to compete with the internet and they don't offer an experience.
0: And that's the thing. Isn't it wild? I mean, I'd love for... Heather, I want to hand things over to you here and not get too in the way, but you're right, Bob, because a, a, a place can have like 11... You could have like 11 vacuum cleaners, but I, I, I'm going to say at, at the same time, like uh, maybe I'm looking for the uh, the 12th option and the one that they didn't have room to stock or they couldn't carry that overhead. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, it, it seems to me, and, and I'm not trying to be a pessimist here, but it seems to me like the deck is stacked uh, for those that have been operating the way that traditionally we have been. Heather, I noticed that as Bob was talking, you were nodding your head, not taking offense. Uh, you yeah. were nodding your head in his assessment of the debacle that is Canadian region is is he onto something? Have you seen the same thing?
6: One hundred percent. Everything he said is correct. The funny thing about the the shopping mall conversation right now is that we have to decide what is valuable about a shopping space. And unfortunately, in Canada, the the um, the conversation might be: Is it the shopping space that's more valuable, or is it the land that it's on? Is it the actual real estate? Is a little bit more right. valuable than the actual um, than the actual mall. Okay. So it's going to be interesting to see the malls that I would I would potentially guess that the malls that do a large investment and really make it beautiful, as, as Bob said. Um, I think those are the malls that could stand a chance and um, if they really lean into that experiential uh, element that I was speaking to earlier. And you see, like, for example, like that Vegas factor, when you look at malls in Vegas for, you know, people can have a drink, they can socialize, they can spend some time, um, but they are beautiful. And I think this is a really important thing. And I think a lot of retailers and business owners think, well, I'll get to that. The aesthetics are a nice to have. And it's not a nice to have, it is a cost of staying in the game. And if the space is not gonna be beautiful, people are not gonna to wanna to spend their time or their money there.
0: Okay, so Heather, I wanna circle back to you and then we'll get Bob's take on this because, because I wanna do sort of a hyper-local example. So Bob, I'll do my best to paint the picture for you. But as if I need to tell anybody about West Edmonton Mall, we've got a mall basically the size of a, of a, of a hamlet uh, in the west side of our city that has been in operation since the early 1980s and obviously has, has done a ton of revenue and a ton of business, but it is aging rapidly. And, and, and if you walk the halls of the mall, it's not the same mall that it was in the 1980s and the 1990s, I can tell you that much. And then Heather, there are a couple other malls in the city of Edmonton. I look at a downtown property right now, like city center mall that has been bleeding anchor tenants. I mean, losing Holt Renfrew, I know is a big blow to their reputation. And you take a look at the amount of square footage that they have and the value of that right in the heart of the city. And if we're talking about Vegas style shopping experiences, or I'd love to throw in like like Maui or Palm Springs or anybody that's ever had a chance to go to these types of places, you're talking about an investment in the probably hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and if I'm the, the property owner there, I'm looking at this going, can we even recoup that based on where these trends are at? I mean, can, can you make the argument that it would be worth the investment of, I don't know, $300, $400 million to give these malls a big facelift?
6: I think that's the question on hand. I think... Generally speaking, in North America as a, as a whole, we have too much physical office space and retail space. You know, we needed that much space before because we needed to house the inventory to keep it on hand. Whereas now, with shipping being so sophisticated, we don't need that sort of space. So, when a retailer might have need 5,000 square feet, at most they might need 1,500 square feet. So, we're dealing with the surplus, uh, like I said, throughout North America. But the interesting thing is, I think it might make sense for some malls to just call it a day, and then repurpose itself, whether it's potentially office space, gym space, more lifestyle space, a movie theater, potentially condos, townhouses. We're seeing a lot of that. There's an example of Canadian Tire in Toronto that is actually incorporating condo towers into its store. So these are the examples of what people are looking for. They're looking for the full communities. Um, The malls that are going to stay in the game I would caution that unless they are prepared to make that significant investment, like you said, Western Mall is a good example that has been investing throughout the years. This wasn't just a pandemic quick shift. They have been investing in terms of the aesthetic and the experiences that they are offering, whether it's restaurants or things for the kids. They have been doing this um, for the last 20 years. So unless the mall is prepared to do that, to Bob's point, it's not gonna, it's, it won't survive.
0: Uh, Bob, you identified three main challenges uh, when it comes to what retailers face and uh, today's landscape. And a big one of those, of course, is supply chain. And we see it literally everywhere. I mean, I'm about to remind our audience about our landscaping partner and their message is that if you want to have you know, deck boards in July, we better start ordering them now. I mean, the supply chain is impacting everybody, no matter what business they do. What can we understand about why this is the case. And how long do you expect this to be an issue for? The supply
5: chain will just, will be a a temporary bump. That'll solve itself. But it's really unsustainable to have the old fashioned large retailers and malls for several reasons. Malls are boring, they're fake. Uh, A lot of our business right now is working with banks and institutions that repossess malls. And all we can advise them is to tear the damn thing down and build a mixed use, a community with high density residential office, civic buildings, squares, and some retail. The mall also isn't sustainable because it was built on the premise that you had a family of four, husband and wife where the wife didn't work, and her primary social activity was going to the mall and trying on every pair of shoes. Also, just the idea of supporting a million square feet of retails isn't supportable. That's why downtowns are working so well. They have smaller independent retailers. If 20 of them close, the whole downtown doesn't Die. If a department store closes in a mall, the mall is toast. All of the small retailers by contract can leave the mall. The, the palatable model is to be in, in medium to size downtowns. And that's where the strong retailers want to go. They want to get out of malls as soon
0: as possible. This is, I mean, it's fascinating, Heather, isn't it? Because exactly what Bob's talking about, and, and it makes sense to me. Um, I love the idea of a vibrant, bustling downtown. I love the idea of pedestrian areas. I love the idea of being, you know. Uh, but I mean, even to talk about our home city, and I should note to people, obviously, you live in Edmonton as well. You ask people what happened to Edmonton's downtown when West Edmonton Mall opened, and the the answer is it was decimated, and it's just starting to recover. And there's some different factors at play, obviously, uh, including a big entertainment and arena district and a lot of the other things that are happening. But but isn't this somewhat ironic uh, that that the the mall led to the so-called death of the downtown? And right now, the downtown, if Bob's right, is going to benefit from the death of the mall?
6: It's definitely an interesting look at how times are shifting. Um, And I think this is what we're seeing. uh, And to be clear, I think what the West Edmonton Mall is is a good example of of something that is still weathering okay, given foot traffic. But to your point, when we look at the Edmonton downtown region, it's doing quite well. And that's what we're looking at when we redefine or define what is retail. You know, retail isn't just going out and looking for the products anymore. I define re- retail as the experience going to Rogers Place, going for, going for a dinner. Um, and I think that's where we need to relook at what that mixture actually looks like. Because if it's if we're looking at just the spaces that sell products, that is going to be limited because we do a lot of our consumption online now. So, we're we're going to see more and more of that experience-based retail. So, like I said, movies, theaters, restaurants. There's even Instagram stores now that people can go and take Instagram pictures with bubbles and stuff. So it's just, that is what we need to be looking at is what is retail. And to Bob's point, when when we're so tied to one distribution sort of model, it's going to be tricky to manage around that because that is why department stores are having such a tough time because they didn't. So give us anything special as consumers, um, but the nice thing about being in a downtown, you have a variety of things to shift from if something doesn't work out.
0: Yeah, and 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 as much as people may roll their eyes at it, Instagrammable is an adjective that's actually relevant. With yeah. regards to where people are going to go, I mean, I see you know the, these different areas that open up, uh, looking to draw traffic. You know, commercial areas, new ones, and um, you know it's big. It's the investment of big murals on the side of the wall in some circumstances, or big sculptures uh, that are drawing people down to take photos. Now, the challenge, of course, is do you get the photographers and the Instagrammers into the stores? And and sometimes that might seem like a Herculean task. Um, I want to ask each of you in closing for for something to, to give us you know a sense to walk with, and and perhaps it's shop local. Perhaps you'll speak to the the consumer side of this, or maybe you'll offer a piece of advice to the retailers. Um, I want to start with you, Heather, because I do want to mention that that you have launched, you and your colleagues, this new digital economy program, which I think is going to be of interest to people. It's a free program, right? Uh, Designed to support small business uh, integrating or upgrading online operations funded by the Alberta government. Can you tell us about this?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think the the digital economy program, it's designed to help businesses enhance or create a digital presence. Like you said, it is free. And I think the really cool thing about programs like this, we've been hearing from the government for a long time now that they're here to support small business. This is what this program is. We're here to support small business. So if if you have a business that's less than 49 employees and you are here in Alberta, you are eligible for this program. The cool thing about it is that we have this decentralization happening of e-commerce. I think it's nice to see that more and more brands are able to provide direct-to-consumer themselves. They don't have to go to a central distribution marketplace like Amazon. You know, Amazon, about 70% of us will use Amazon as a knee-jerk reaction, but that's going to be shifting because more and more people can actually go ahead and provide that same seamless, frictionless transaction to their customer because of things like Shopify, for example, where they make it so easy. And then it's super affordable for for the businesses as well. So these are the sorts of shifts that we're excited to see. I think the pandemic has made it so tricky and so difficult, and a lot of businesses didn't survive. And a lot of them just weren't online. And if you are not online, it's almost like you don't exist, And that is definitely not the story we want to tell. So here at the University of Alberta, we are providing the digital service team for the entire Capital Region here in Edmonton. Otherwise, businesses, if they're outside of that area, can actually just go right over to uh, BusinessLink to register for the program. So for us, you'll be matched with other students, um, and then they'll be your consultant and help businesses get going and create some sort of digital platform.
0: That's a great opportunity for people. And, and I think especially as we've used this conversation as a bit of a scene setter, uh, Bob, last word to you, something to think about, something maybe we didn't get into or cover as, as much as you would have liked something for us to consider in the the hours and the days to come.
5: Well, first of all, there's tens of thousands of highly qualified chefs that are borrowing money from friends and families and opening in downtowns. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the shop local thing is a complete fallacy. We feel that downtowns should sell the goods and brands that people want to buy. That's more sustainable than just selling little trinkets and kites and sensitive candles. We think to be competitive and to be viable, that the downtown retailers should outperform the malls. And offer the brands that people want to buy, just not the trinkets. That's how we that's how we outcompete suburbia, by making it more profitable and
0: to sell the things in downtowns that people want. I can tell by Heather's body language that she agrees, Heather.
6: Can I piggyback on that really quickly? <laughs> yeah. I love this conversation because I think the shop local campaign is flawed. Because I, I agree with you, Bob. It puts the ownership on the consumer and not on the business owner. We need to make sure that we are providing the right experiences and the right products so people want to shop local. We can't just berate our customers and to say, you have a responsibility to shop local. They don't. They do not have a responsibility to shop local. They should do the legwork and see what's available for them. But if they can find it cheaper or a better product or a better experience somewhere else, they're going to do that.
5: And and Heather, the best thing for a local retailer is to be between two high volume national retailers that bring thousands of people in front of their stores every
0: day. Mm Yeah. No kidding, right? You just wedge yourself between a hot restaurant and a liquor store. Right, Bob, <laughs> there you go. You're just going to get all the foot traffic. I really appreciate this conversation and the insight from two different perspectives, obviously two expert voices. Bob Gibbs, uh, a retail instructor at Harvard University, principal at Gibbs Planning Group, Heather Thompson, executive director at the Center for Cities and Communities, formerly known as the School of Retail at the University of Alberta. My thanks to you both, and have a great rest of your week. Thank, Thank you. you. Good stuff. Uh, I, I like that. I like that attitude. Uh, you know, um, I guess when you sort of cut to the chase, it can come across sounding a little harsh. But I totally agree with both of them that the the onus is not on the consumer all the time to shop local. I mean, it, it, you, we want to shop local and we endeavor to, and we do, but not at the expense, or not at the sacrifice, or the compromise of the consumer experience. Is, is that how you feel about it? I'd be curious to know. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I want to drop into the live chat on this, but but I mean, this is fascinating stuff hearing from essentially like pretty significant shifts and changes in the way that people are doing business and, and some of the costs associated with updating your offerings. Um, This is is big stuff. I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't even think I would. I mean, I'd want to know what it pays, Hoyles, but I don't even know that I would want the job of being tasked with finding big anchor tenants for big, huge shopping malls right now. I mean, with regards to what you, you got to charge per square foot and with regards to the cost you're trying to recoup, I mean, it's just not the way that it's going. And, and and it may be too early to stick a fork in big malls and say they're dead right now. But how about that from Bob? Did he say 40% of the big malls and big box stores forecasted to close in the next three years? I mean, that's a short window.
4: That is wild, but not surprising. And I just, I appreciated the frankness of it. Malls are dead. Yeah. <laughs> Go downtown and uh, yeah, sell what people want
0: yeah and and providing the experience they want, which I think is a big thing. So I mean, I, I do think there's a balance. like i I, I thought it was uh, lousy to hear I was telling you from my friend several years ago when they closed their specialty kitchen shop, pretty lousy to hear that people would come in, ask questions about an item, put their hands all over the item. They want to see how it feels. You're buying a chef's knife, you want to know how it feels in your hand. You want to see if the espresso machine is worth it. Uh, you know, you, you go into the store, you, you tap into their expertise and then you head home and you buy it online to save 30 bucks. Um, I I can understand how that would be frustrating for the retailer. So maybe a little bit falls on the consumer, but you can't have shop local, be a guilt campaign. And I'm not saying necessarily that it is, but, but sort of the snobbery, it's the same thing as people that rescue dogs, as opposed to people that buy dogs from breeders. It's very similar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ooh. I just had to slip that in. You knew Zing. I was going to slip that in. Zing. On the live chat, on the live chat, Justin says, listen, I, Justin says, I work in residential housing with regards to comments about uh, supply chain. He says these issues with lumber, Justin says this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, he says it's just going to level off. We've seen huge increases in new home prices, uh, but the market is still strong. Justin, no kidding, right? I mean, you take a look at Buddy of Mine got quoted on having his front steps redone. The cost quadrupled. He, he he snoozed at the beginning and boy, did he lose. Uh, he's ending up. I mean, he's putting together his front steps himself now. I think he's going to use like pallets and milk crates, but uh, the cost of lumber is why that cost, the quote has gone up. Chelsea says, you know, I, I've been taking a look at this. I have no desire, though, to be honest, to hang out at a mall, uh, but I will go hang out in pedestrian areas like White Avenue in Edmonton, for example, during the summer, uh, says Chelsea, but not a mall. Uh, it'd be the same with Stephen Avenue in Calgary or Robson street in vancouver or whatever it is ottawa toronto they all have montreal great shopping districts uh, great areas to walk but but again sarah that comes back down to the experience um i don't know we haven't even i haven't even heard pick sam's brain on this either but I, I don't know about you guys but i you know for me that that idea of the experience they really tapped into something i think that's what people are looking for i'm not talking about when you're going to replace the, the toner for your printer i don't care about a retail experience i care about who can get it to me the fastest uh, but when it comes to wearing, it am maybe go buy my shoes or just go shopping, Sam, are you wired the same way?
7: Y- yes and no. I, I mean, like, yeah, if I'm going to buy a pair of shoes, I want to walk around in them. And I feel like I owe it to the store that I walked around in there with their shoes on to buy yep. that pair of shoes. I mean, yep. and, and also I get to have it that day. I mean, like I'm a little bit there's like if I'm going to go out and buy something, I'm going to come home with it that day. It seems totally bogus to me to to shop and then wait a few more days for it to be shipped to me.
0: I'm this, I almost refuse to buy shoes online anymore. Um, i'm I'm just gonna complain right now just for a split second because uh, I know that you know, I, I bought a pair of shoes uh, to play basketball in a couple of weeks ago, and I and I saw them online, and I was so excited and I ordered the size that always fits, and they arrive, and the shoes are flawed. There's something wrong with actually how the shoes are made and they're and and now I've been going through the process. Uh, because they were pricey. I spent all of my allowance on these shoes. And so now I'm touching, they're going, well, it's great. You just got to bring it back to the post office and then ship it to us. And then we'll take a look and then we'll let you know. And then you can go pick up a new pair at the brick. And I'm just going, this would have never happened if I would have just gone to the store, tried the shoes on, realized they weren't a fit. I would have never bought them in the first place oils. Uh, I, I, online to me is not always better.
4: And I think that was what Bob Bob spoke to that so well, the idea that, yeah, we need to leverage that. Local businesses can leverage that idea that you can return it right away, that that's a pain in the ass, everybody knows it, and you, you can try it on, you can have it that very same day.
0: Yeah. Marie points out, she says, there's that empty mall north of Calgary. She says, I don't even think it was able to open because it didn't attract anybody, any stores. If, if you live in the, the Calgary Airdrie area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Not Crest Iron Mills, which is like the huge mall with the big Bass Pro Shop and everything, but there's another mall they built like right beside it. And it's, I don't even know the story with it. It's just, it's, it looks like it's been sitting empty the entire time. It looks like a front for something. I don't even know what the deal with that is, Marie. If you have intel on that, uh, you can send us an email, uh, let us know, donna and i'm about to sound like a jerk here but but donna donna's not wrong she says seniors walk the mall people with special needs walk the mall people in in wheelchairs utilize the mall donna absolutely correct absolutely true and malls have been valuable community hubs but but this is business and uh quite frankly if you're trying to appeal to the people that are spending money this is like the 15 to 55 year olds It's not a selling feature that seniors use the mall to get in their walks on cold days. That is not a sexy selling feature to draw young spenders to the mall. That's probably the problem. And it's not a swipe at seniors or people with disabilities that use the mall for social opportunities. These have been important community hubs. But what does that look like? What does the community hub look like updated to 2022? And how do you continue to draw people in? Hoyles, you look like you have an idea on this. Uh, but but I, I mean, I'm just trying to, the, the cold hard truth here is that malls are there to do retail business, not to provide a venue for people to get in their exercise. That might be a side benefit of them being there, but that's not why they're there.
4: Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't pay the bills, right? That doesn't yeah. actually pay the mortgage, pay the lease. Uh, the reason why they're there is for retail. And I would say that's kind of like malls have been, have been helpful to get people that, that need to get in their steps or mobility issues. But really what that speaks to is the fact that maybe the streets and the sidewalks need to be dealt with in a better way so they are more accessible, so people don't have to go to the mall to do that. I feel like yeah. that's, I think we're missing the point, for streets. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I go. Yeah, force for the trees. There you go. That's the editorial producer of the show. Always keeping us focused and on track, Oils. I appreciate it. That was a great conversation. Hey, speaking of supporting local, you know, if you live in our neck of the woods, uh, you have, of course, opportunity to choose who's providing your internet, electricity, and natural gas. It's why we're so proud to recommend the services provided by Park Power, your friendly local utilities company. Right now, it's as easy as popping by parkpower.ca to compare rates on what you're currently paying for natural gas, electricity, and internet versus what you could be paying with Park Power. Switching over has never been easier. I know that they're going to see real traffic coming from Real Talkers this month because all of us are starting to get our utility bills in from a month-long cold snap. I just saw ours yesterday. I sat there and I took three deep breaths and I opened the envelope and, um, well... Regardless of who your provider is, we did use more electricity and natural gas, but I'm happy to know that we do have the options of either the variable or fixed rate and you can find all the details online at parkpower.ca. Also big shout out to our friends at Local Environmental Services, you know, for more than 25 years they've been family-owned and operating across the prairies, most notably in Alberta and Saskatchewan where they're keeping it local with construction, commercial and residential waste and recycling collection. They've got a big 20 22 coming up i've hinted at this more than i probably should because it's not my announcement to make but local environmental services will be continuing their growth pattern in the year to come and we're very proud to partner with them including their sponsorship of trash talk that goes every friday here on the show uh, you can send in your rant to talk at ryanjesperson.com and it will help you blow off a little steam trash talk of course proudly presented by the team at local environmental services I've not yet figured out how I'm gonna pull off trash talk from the family dining room table. I've got a six year old that's upstairs right now being such a good kid. He's doing educational games on his iPad as he crushes a bagel. And if he hears daddy start to scream all the words he's not allowed to say, I'm gonna have some splaining to do. So we'll have to figure that out between now and Friday morning. We talked about supply chain, and that's exactly what Mike and I were talking about a few weeks ago when we met for lunch. Mike, of course, he and his family own and operate Eden Landscaping. And he said, listen, people don't realize right now, if you wanna have your deck or your retaining wall or your pergola or your gazebo built, in time for summer we got to be talking now the design process has to start now because they've got to get those construction materials ordered in time for spring construction you can find eden landscaping online and browse some of the projects that they've pulled off they've got a very diverse style they can do modern they can do classic they can do those lawn designs that integrate those native grasses and plants i mean they're just the really the beautiful trends in landscaping eden does it all at landscapeedmonton.ca and of course who Who would tune in to Real Talk and not expect to hear me gushing about the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for a quick second. Right now through the month of January, the Real Talk special is buy one, get one free when it comes to the takeaway boxes of Dilly Bars and DQ Sandwiches. Now I'm here to report I've done the groundwork. I myself have stopped by a Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park, in particular the Westmount location, and I asked them, am I able to buy a box of Dilly Bars and take a box of sandwiches for free or could I buy a box of sandwiches and take a box of dilly bars for free and they said why sir yes that's no problem I said thank you very much sir and that's exactly what I did so if you swing by the Dairy Queens of Palisades Nemeo, Newcastle Westmount or Baseline Road right now through the month of January you drop my name or the name of Real Talk they're going to let you buy one box of dilly bars or sandwiches and take the second box free Now, if our team was in studio, I would have been able to bring those dilly bars and sandwiches by and share. But unfortunately, Sarah's at home. Sam's in studio. I'm home. It means I'm just going to have to keep them all to myself with apologies to the team. Yeah, you Um, plan that. mm -hmm. I mean, what can I say? What can I say? Mm -hmm. I wanted to wrap the show in sort of a full circle. (laughs) See, this is what we do. We just we when I find myself in an uncomfortable, we just blaze through But I wanted to bring the show full circle because we started talking to Sapria out of the gates, which meant we didn't get our usual chat. We didn't get to have an opportunity for the team to come together and talk about this. And I wanted to pick both your brains on this health tax that Quebec's Premier Francois Legault has hinted at. As Sapria pointed out, we don't have all the details. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We don't know who will pay it. You know, people have said, what about folks with medical exemptions? What about people living in remote parts of the province of Quebec that have not had access to vaccines? There's a lot of what ifs here, uh, let alone clarification on how much people are going to be paying. But with three out of four respondents to our unofficial Twitter poll saying they support it, I wonder if we'll have consensus on the Real Talk team. Hoyles, do you have it? I, I, I have a guess with regards to how you might feel about this, but I've been wrong many times before with regards to guessing where you might land on something. Where are you on this?
4: I think it's semantics. Uh, but people are like, oh, tax, you can't tax it. It goes against, you know, what Canadians are allowed to have with health. I think it's a fine and I am fine with a fine.
0: You're fine with a fine. Okay, Sam, where do you land on this? You are okay we- with it? I, I really love that Sapria called this
7: policy via group chat. Like I wrote yeah. that down. That was great. Uh, where do I land on this? We, we need an effective tool to get, Vaccines done. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's important to point out that this is not affecting healthcare delivery. Like, nobody's going to be denied service if they don't pay this. Um, how it plays out, I, you know, time will tell. I think the spirit of the rule to me lets, you know, put a little incentive in place. To, to try and nudge people towards vaccination. like I think that the barring people from liquor and cannabis stores was actually a very smart move on the part of the Quebec government. So we'll wait and see. I don't know if I'm, I'm all in on this yet, but uh, I, I definitely am, am leaning in the direction of a tool to get this over with is, uh, is all right in my books.
0: What does it say about our society that that we will tell people that if you don't get vaccinated, uh, it's going to prolong the the length of this pandemic. It's going to continue to endanger people with pre-existing health conditions, people that are vulnerable uh, with regards to susceptibility to COVID based on their realities. And people don't care one bit. They don't get vaccinated one bit. But you tell them that they can't enter the liquor store or that they can't go buy their pre-rolled doobies at the cannabis store and then they get vaccinated. I mean, what does that say about I'm asking the question seriously, not rhetorically. I mean, it's actually kind of discouraging.
4: Kind of. It It is. Dis- <laughs> like, yeah, it's brutal. It's, 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 it's absolutely.
0: Oh, I, I don't even have words. There are no words. <laughs> like, 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 like you could get like the, the, the little old lady living next door could contract COVID uh, because of you. And uh, it may lead to her untimely passing. Well, the laws of nature. You know, this is the harsh reality of nature. Uh, You might not be able to go in and pick up your two six of Alberta pure today. Uh, Well, okay, I'm going to go get the shot. Right. I mean, Sam, I don't know if maybe I'm maybe I'm sort of going too deep into this, but that's something that's always sort of struck me as as a little bit of a bummer.
7: Yeah, I. I mean, because I, I remember having a discussion with somebody about this before, about like even just vaccine mandates and, and the whole notion of like, do you mandate vaccines? And, and I'm, I'm very firmly in the camp of, no, you don't mandate vaccines, but it me is too. well within your right to say, here's some things you can't participate in if you're not vaccinated. Like that, that, that is fine with me. Basically saying like these parts of society are closed to you because you're not putting the health of the other people top of mind.
0: Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree with you. I think I think that if you, if you start getting to the point of mandatory vaccines with regards to like what, like like the RCMP pinning you down while you get your shot. I mean, it's, it's absolutely out of control. It's not an option. No, but Hoyle, seriously. I mean, people is like you 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 cannot. And I think that the the conversation has been portrayed in somewhat of a disingenuous way by a lot of people they are saying, you know, this government is like it's like forcing vaccines on people. No, it's not. But like Sam said, I mean, forced vaccinations uh, would be literally pinning people down and vaccinating them. And that would be when society is officially broken. Uh, You obviously can't do that. And that would lead to, I think, actually pretty gnarly circumstances where people would arm themselves and, you know, it would be nuts. It would be totally nuts. It would be like out of the apocalyptic style movie. It just wouldn't happen. Uh, But like Sam said, denial of service or denial of opportunity, denial of access to venues Uh, That might have to be part of how society moves forward. And I think a certain part of public policy on this is going to have to be unapologetic. Uh, A lot of people in our comments here, let me get to some of them. I'm not going to be able to show you my screen from home, but I want to read to some of your responses. And you can go to my Twitter profile and you can read these as part of my poll where it shows that 75% of you are okay with what Quebec is doing. A lot of you have said, uh, Francois Legault, the premier there is showing leadership here not everybody feels that way, obviously. Uh, Dan says, instead of a health tax, why not just make it so unvaccinated folks would have to pay their bill for any COVID-related hospitalizations? I mean, these are the types of things, these ideas we can cook up that you'd never be able to actually roll out. That would be one of them. What about this from Ms. O? Ms. O says that it would be a logistical nightmare, this health tax. I'd rather see a hard ban. If you're not va- not vaxxed, that's cool. Uh, But you can stay home from everything except for government service buildings and grocery stores, uh, at least until the pandemic is over. Uh, The Optimist says this goes against the principles of the Canada Health Act. Uh, It heralds the way for two tiered health care. Well, I may agree as an individual, I think we need to be careful as a society in suggesting something like this. I don't see the the link to two-tiered healthcare in this. Maybe I'm missing something obvious. Maybe you can correct me on Twitter, but I I don't see how that's relevant. Um, Donna says, I was thrilled to see this announcement from Quebec's premier. Uh, I wish Alberta's premier had uh, one iota of the courage that Premier Legault showed to protect the vaccinated and the vulnerable. Donna says, I strongly support this decision. Eddie says, I totally agree. Uh, people who think that you know you should tax drinkers and smokers, uh, they can think of this as like an anti-vax sin tax. It's no different than drunk drivers losing insurance coverage if they're found guilty or negligent uh, when it comes to impaired driving. You know, This is the equivalent of paying up or maybe even losing your license. Meantime, Taryn says people should never be denied or charged for healthcare services. Uh, Taryn says, I'm mad as hell at people who are flagrantly flagrantly disregarding the system and weighing it down, but they still should have the right to access it. She says it's sadly ironic. I agree with Taryn. I think people should have access to the healthcare system. But when you have five-year-olds who are experiencing great deals of pain because their surgeries are being delayed because of uh, inavailability of healthcare uh, professionals, surgeons, nurses, uh, beds, When you see surgeries for people in great deals of pain or people with very time-sensitive situations, cancer surgeries I'm talking about, brain tumors I'm talking about, and these are being delayed because the healthcare system is strained, because people are not getting vaccinated and clogging up that healthcare system, then I start to wonder about, and, and Taryn, I apologize for characterizing your comment like this, but the bleeding heart angle of how everybody must have access to healthcare, I do not deny you that. You're going to point to somebody that has neglected their health in a number of different ways. Look at this guy's been blowing rails for 30 years. He doesn't even have a septum anymore. He's done so much cocaine. And if he develops a big nosebleed and wonders if it's a brain hemorrhage, you telling me that he should be triaged out of the ER just because he's been doing drugs? No, I'm not saying that. What about this person? They haven't gone for a walk or eaten a piece of fruit in 30 years, and now they've got some sort of a diabetic attack. Let's tell them to hit the road. No way. It's not how we operate. We don't take a look at somebody that crashed their motorcycle, heaven forbid, against a lamppost and say you participated in risky activity or you should have never been ice climbing. We're not going to let you have that femur surgery you need because you endangered yourself and now you're costing all of us. It's not how we roll. But this is an unprecedented circumstance where people are willingly saying no to a vaccine that could literally turn the tide of this thing and get us out of it. And at some point, I wouldn't blame my fellow Canadians for losing patience. You can let us know how you feel about what you're hearing here. We honestly desire your input to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You help shape the editorial content that you hear here on the show. I want to let you know what's coming up tomorrow. We've got a great show that Sarah's been working on, and we're going to be keeping an eye on the stories making news, including a conversation tomorrow about kids. What's Dr. Tyler Black have to say about the psychiatry angle of keeping kids out of school plus you've probably heard of Wyatt Sharp the 12 year old podcaster he's going to join me for another big interview all of that coming up tomorrow
1: real talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson editorial producer Sarah Hoyles technical producer Sam Brooks managing director Josh Dunford account coordinator Tanya Franklin Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harman Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux Home to Metis settlements and the Metis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.